0: Bail funds have really started a conversation about if what bail was supposed to do is get people, guarantee that people get back to court, we have all the evidence in the world that we need to show that there's some pretty basic things that people need to get back to court. They need reminders. They need rides often, right? They need speedy trial systems that don't require you to come back, that are not clogged, They require you to come back to court 12 times when you're trying to pull down a job to support your family.
1: Welcome to Bois Deer, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm going to talk to Pilar Weiss, the project director of the National Bail Fund Network. We're going to talk about community bail funds and the role that they play in shaping conversations about criminal justice reform, specifically bail reform. For those of you who haven't heard of community bail funds, they are organizations that pool community resources so that when a judge sets bail, the bail fund steps in and simply pays the person's bail. The accused person can then fight their case from home instead of being incarcerated before trial. Bail funds are an amazingly elegant solution to the problem of money bail in this country, and Pilar Weiss is going to lay out a vision of community engagement in the system that I really appreciate. One quick note before we do that is that we recorded this interview at the offices of the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund, so you're going to hear some ambient noise. New Yorkers, as those of you who have had the pleasure of meeting one of us know, tend to wear heels and walk very loudly and with purpose, and you're going to hear that but if you've ever seen folks at work in a courthouse, including bail funds, you'll know that a lot of good work gets done with people buzzing around. So here's our conversation. So I thought we would start off uh, with you just painting us a picture. We're in Brooklyn, just past the courthouse. <laughs> Someone is arrested in Brooklyn, and they're taken to an arraignment court. What happens next, and how does a bail fund get involved?
0: So, um, you know, bail the process of bail being said and people, family, friends, uh, loved ones, and bail funds, paying bail looks different in every jurisdiction, right? But so in Brooklyn, right down the street, at an arraignment hearing that would happen, the DA or the, the prosecutor will, in many cases, uh, ask for bail to be set as a condition. Um, so, you know, a very large percentage of people are released um, on their own recognizance, and that's a great thing, and we think, right, everybody has the presumption of innocence, nobody's been found guilty, they've just been charged, and so we, we always want to see as many people released as possible, but there is a subset of people that the system asks for bail, and so at that point, Bail can be paid in New York. Um, this is not true all across the country. There's some places where there's specific times that bail can be paid. You know, bail could be paid then before somebody gets put on the bus and taken to Rikers. They could get all the way to Rikers and then have bail set, and I mean, bail paid, um, and be released. So there's... The, the intervention point is, you know, there once bail has been set. What... So
1: how does it work bail? So, yeah,
0: so bail, community bail funds... Pool of funds, and for the most part, you know, across the country, it's a mixture of foundation money, individual donors, a lot of crowdfunding, and they have a pot of funds that they then use to pay bail for people, and um, they do it without judgment, right? They're not trying to like do a new risk assessment. They're paying for people to be free and to not then supervise them, right? It's to get people out. A bail fund is paying the hundred percent cash amount of the bail the person is being released and then you know in some cases bail funds provide reminders or assistance in getting to court when the case is closed the money comes back minus fees and fines which it's important to contextualize that it's not a perfect hundred percent no loss situation and then they can pay bail for other people but so you know it's really the not engaging with the bail bonds right in keeping the profit-driven piece out of it and making sure that people are, you know, their bail is paid for and they are not, they are now free, they're free to fight their case, they're free to live their life, and they're free to return back to court is different than I think, you know, there's other programs within the system and other solutions that people have tried to hold up that essentially expand the surveillance state and sort of don't trust that people are gonna come back, don't provide assistance to get people back, but instead are, you know, hooking in um, electronic, you know, ankle monitors or lots of check-ins and surveillance, and I think bail funds have an explicit analysis that people just need to be out and free, and they may need some assistance that's based on need, like whether it's transportation or reminders to get back to court. If you provide that, people, nobody's trying to flee. People want to close their cases. People want their day in court.
1: And, um... The purpose of bail is is what is it, is it something that's taken away forever if they set bail for about five hundred dollars? Am I just paying five hundred dollars to the court system, or how does that
0: work? Well, it depends, right? Um, I mean, the purpose of bail, and it's a you know archaic you know it's a it's part of sort of colonial history, and it doesn't exist in most countries, right? Um, is supposed to guarantee that you come back to court that you don't. And I'm doing air quotes, right? They don't flee. That's the intention. But we can talk more about how that's not actually how it's being used at this point. It's being used to incarcerate people who are poor. But bail is set, usually an amount is set as the cash bail. And then there's usually another amount that's set as the amount that you can pay if you're going to use a bail bonds person. Um, The U.S. and the Philippines are the only place that have commercial bail bond industry. So if you pay cash... um, or if a bail fund pays cash for you, for bail, you get that back at the end of your case um, when it's resolved, as long as you've to all your court dates, and that's whether you're found guilty or whether your case is dismissed. If you use a commercial bail bond agent, you are paying a for-profit company and you are not getting that money back. You might get your collateral back if they also ask for a collateral, but it's important to distinguish that people who end up having to use a commercial bail bond agent out of necessity, because that's the only way that they can afford to make the payment, end up losing that money. Um, yesterday actually the New York City Comptroller put a really amazing report out documenting the hundreds of millions of dollars that are pulled out of the economy into the commercial bail bond industry just in New York City.
1: So you talked about the ways that, that bail... what bail is intended to be and what it's actually doing, which is uh, imprisoning poor people. Can you talk about how that is happening?
0: I, mean, I think around the country, right, The there's a slight range state to state, but around the country, you know almost two-thirds of people who are um, incarcerated in US jails are um, there pre-trial and they're there because they can't afford to pay bail. So we've seen, you know there's a lot of documentation about this of really one of the huge drivers of our absolutely outrageously ballooned criminal justice system and the huge number of people that are being incarcerated in this country is because of how bail has created. A penalty on people who are poor, and if you think about, I you think know, like we, I think there's a skew of around around wealth and economic access in this country, and so there's been a ton of studies that show that you know over half of American households don't have access to $500 cash, liquid, ready to go, and so you see how that's exacerbated exacerbated the problem.
1: And what happens? So someone's not able to to post bail that's you know they're they're being incarcerated so that in and of itself is a is a big problem but bail that incarceration has consequences beyond just the sort of loss of liberty what are those
0: yeah so i think you know there's, this is one of these areas that's been studied to death of you know the impact on people and their families and their jobs and their lives right so being incarcerated even for a short amount of time could mean that you lose your job, it means you could lose custody of your children, it means that you could lose your housing. There's been, so there's this huge collateral consequences on people's families, and then the ripple effect therefore on the economy. It also means that if you're incarcerated pre-trial, the outcome of your case is way worse, right? So you have twice, if you're out and you paid somebody, or you have paid your bail, if you're out on bail, you have twice the likelihood that your case is going to be dismissed. If you are incarcerated pretrial, you have a 90% chance of ending up taking a plea. So if you end up taking a, getting forced into taking a plea, or not having uh, your case dismissed, right, that has the long-term impact of now you're, you've been convicted. You know you have a record that could prevent you from having access to housing, access to jobs, access to lots of different things that people might take for granted. So I think it's important. That, you know sometimes there's a focus on like what is the cost per day to a city or a state of the cost to jail somebody and that is certainly a conversation to be had about like what are we spending our money to, as a society on and where those monies be, be diverted but the, the intense collateral consequences and costs to to human beings and their families is, is intense and it just really stacks up I think there's sometimes maybe you know you've discussed this in other and other interviews, you know, there's a sort of a presumption that, like, cases get resolved. Like, I think there's a, there's, we often forget how clogged the American legal, you know, legal system is, right? And so you have people who can't afford bail jailed for months, sometimes years, right? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the case of Cleef Browder. Right? He was jailed for three years because he could not afford bail based on a charge of stealing a backpack, right? And the case then got dismissed so you you see you know these these cases really stretch out and so the impact is not just a couple days always it's often much longer
1: I think Khalif Browder is like obviously an American tragedy but also something of like an American like a of a, a hero I don't know of many people that would have had the sort of like fortitude or sense of like I didn't do this I didn't steal this backpack and I'm going to Undergo like two years of solitary confinement and just gross abuse at the hands of the state and other people when he could have just pled guilty and left, you know, and walked mm-hmm. out of Rikers that day. But I think it's for one Khalid Browder, there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people who, like, it's not a rational decision, right, to, to, to not say guilty, to hold out and get your day in court because for many folks who are charged with misdemeanors, you could literally get time served and walk out that day. It's hard sometimes I think for people to understand how you
0: could end up pleading guilty to something you didn't do. But. Yeah no and I think we see that all the time with regard to bail too right is if bail is going to keep you in and your the option is be in jail until your case goes to trial or gets resolved or lose custody of your children lose your house lose your job and you are the sole provider for your children and your right. family that suddenly to your point like It's until you're in that situation, or if you know, and you've seen people go through that situation, it's easy to sort of act like, why would people, you know? And and to your point, like Cleburne really was, he had this amazing fortitude and and conviction of actually challenging the system that he was not going to take the plea.
1: Right. You you sort of passed over um, to get to the human cost, the sort of also costs to the. Taxpayer, government, et cetera, which are also significant. So I wonder if you could just talk about sort of like the scale of money, and we can talk about New York or, or whatever, that's being spent on incarcerating people pre trial, let's say, like at Rikers.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, you know, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, right? I mean, I think Chicago, Cook County, I think it's about $150 a day. New York, I think it's about $180 a day is what the calculation is. You think about the there's been a drop because there's a lot of reform conversations going on, there's a lot of pressure in the system, but if you think about the scale at Rikers, of like 10,000 people per day are being caged at a cost to taxpayers of $180 a day, right? You can think of millions of other things that you could do with that money um, and reinvest in communities and, and, and think about some of the root causes of why people are, are ending up arrested and charged. Especially when?
1: As bail funds are showing, it's completely unnecessary to sort of quote unquote keep communities safe. Yeah. Um, so, that, that one of the things I think is so cool about bail funds. So, let's talk about bail funds. <laughs> um, so, uh, what is a bail fund? And, you know, in the sort of average case that you were describing in Brooklyn, let's just use that as an example where would a bail fund intervene um, mm-hmm. as opposed to a bail bondsman or having mm-hmm. to go to Rikers? Mm-hmm.
0: So just to take a step back. I mean, community bail funds take on a lot of different formations, and they have a long history, right? So people have been coming together to pool resources and buy people's freedom, buy each other's freedom for a long time, right? You can go look back to you know during slavery, pe- slaves freed slaves pulled resources to free each other, right? And then through different social movements, we've seen activists and community members come together to pay bail for folks right so there's a long history in the civil rights movement there's a long history in the lgbtq movement Um, there's a lot of church-based bail funds in the 70s and 80s and taking sort of a stance on mass incarceration and so you can look through a lot of interesting cases where you know people came together to pay Martin Luther King Jr.'s bail, people came together to pay Angela Davis's bail, right? Like, there's these very, there's these really interesting moments that people might, we sort of see them most. those are some of the early bail funds, even if they were bailing out one person or if even if it was a group of people, but when you have community members coming together, pooling resources to pay for somebody that's not their brother or their father or their sister or their mother. That's really
1: interesting. I've, I've never really seen Bail funds contextualized like that, or put in the in sort of the history of bail funds. I don't know. I read a like New York Times article recently about you know what's been going on in New York, and it's basically like. Robin Steinberg invented the bail fund, right? And that, not to diminish all the amazing stuff that's going on now, sure. but what is the importance of putting bail funds in that historical context?
0: I think it's it's critical to put it in the historical context, and I think it's true. Like there's been We're in a current, I'm going to come present and then go backwards again. (laughs) Right now, in the last five years, there's been a big uptick of bail funds, right? So there's kind of like this modern wave of bail funds. Mm. Um, But I think it's super important to contextualize that like, it's not a new invention and that it's been part of social movements and people trying to take power back from the carceral state, right? And especially as we've seen huge increases in... You know, police state and how mass incarceration has increased, that's been a you know, it's been a tool of resistance and it's been a tool of intervention. I mean there's a there's a very intense history of, you know, radical, you know, black led abolition oriented bail funds in Chicago in the seventies and eighties that were specifically thinking about how do we get people out and also make you know the point to the system that this is wrong. Right. So this is like our like the current wave of bail funds, you know, we don't have a particularly you know novel or new theory of change. We're building off of what folks have done in the past.
1: So bail funds have, have now been around for some time. Cl- clearly that model works, right? Like people are not fleeing. Money is coming back. What actually is, you know, what are we seeing as a result of bail funds being in robust existence in certain jurisdictions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I would just take one step back, which is I think part of this like current wave of bail funds that exist, and I would sort of say like in the last five years, um, five to seven maybe, right, is that they're bailing people out and they're also connecting to campaigns to end money bail, right? And it's really like they see the work is tied together. They're not, they could just bail people out and have no opinion on that, but that's there's a very critical analysis. It's a big piece of the bail funds, and in many places they're also lifting up the stories and the data that they have to show that, you know, the system is not functioning right. The, f- the system is incarcerating people because they don't have money. Right. Um, so so just to make that explicit, yeah. So for example, you, you pay someone's
1: bail, they come back to court. Clearly, the system that would have. Like, but for the existence of the bail fund, the system that existed is broken, yeah. right? Um, so that data becomes incredibly helpful.
0: Yeah, and the data about you know the, the rate of dismissals, right? Bail funds see a huge number of the cases they pay for, right? Usually two to four times, uh, two to four times, as, you know, rate of case dismissal. So, but for the bail fund, the person may have been forced to take a plea because they needed to get out to their kids, mm-hmm. or they ended up you know, being. The, the case went on and on for years, right? And so we see bail funds lifting up that. I mean, we also see bail funds lifting up sort of, you know, especially within the current context of um, reform, right? Like we have a lot of people, like we have the DAs in Brooklyn and Manhattan announcing that they're going to stop setting asking for bail and for misdemeanors We've got the DA outside of Boston, Massachusetts, declaring that they're going to stop um, asking for bail. And bail funds are lifting up and showing and doing accountability, right, about that's not true, because like, we just paid bail for X number of people mm. on these charges that you specifically set, right? So this the system has all this discretion in it, where DAs and judges are asking for bail and setting bail on people, right? And bail funds tend to be able to be this sort of mirror of accountability um, to lift that up. You, so you're working in collaboration with community or with organizers
1: that are also trying to change the mm-hmm. bail system. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see replace the bail system? Are you in favor of risk assessment tools, or, or what do you think, think is the sort of next? Yeah, I mean, from here?
0: I think there's a critical piece, which is like we don't need a replacement, right? And I think that oftentimes the conversation gets set up of like, you know, well we can't just not have bail; we'd have to replace it. And what I think, you know, our position, and this is true of bail funds across the country, right, is that people should be released. And supported to return back to court and um, and that there should also be support for many of the support services that are driving some. you know like so if we have a lot of people who are getting arrested because they are homeless and they are getting arrested because they are sleeping in an abandoned building like we need to address that right like that is the issue not a risk assessment tool i mean i think risk we're we're deeply opposed to risk assessment tools because there's been most of the evidence that's coming out now that they're actually They're not good predictors of anything, right? They they just reiterate on, you know, racial biases and other problems. I think in addition, bail funds have really started a conversation about if what bail was supposed to do is get people, guarantee that people get back to court, we have all the evidence in the world that we need to show that there's some pretty basic things that people need to get back to court. They need reminders. They need rides often, right? They need speedy trial systems that don't require you to come back, that are not clogged. They require you to come back to court 12 times when you're trying to pull down a job to support your family, right? So, like we, bail funds can really show that, right? I think there's this there there tends to be a bit of an obsession around proving that people have come back to court, right? And the baseline, people bail funds pay for people, people come back to court. That's also true. Of, people who don't have bail funds paying for them. right? I think both are showing the system of like, we don't have an appearance crisis. Right? We don't have people fleeing to miss court. Sometimes people not showing up for court because they're scared of ICE coming in and grabbing them in the current environment. We have people not coming to court because of very real conflicts and challenges in their life around health and transportation and jobs, but we don't actually have an appearance crisis.
1: Or I was in court yesterday, and someone tapped me <laughs> on the shoulder and was like, "Hey, what do I do?" Like this was in Boston, this uh-huh. was in Roxbury, and they were like, "Hey, what do I do?" I also have a court appearance in the Boston, you know, Central Municipal Court yeah. today, and it's like, "Well, that is a... That's a real conflict, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you, you cannot be in two places at once, yeah. and one of these places is going to punish you for that. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's plenty of things that you could do to make people's lives easier. Yeah. So I, I guess this sort of non-judgmental mm-hmm. approach that bail funds are taking, uh, sort of pushes back or flies in the face of a lot of times reform stays fa- as far away from possible as. From quote unquote like violent offenders, mm-hmm. uh, and I wonder how you think about that. I'm I'm as you said, as you, you take a non-judgmental approach. So I'm assuming you bail everyone out who is bailed under a certain amount, or like do you ever screen out?
0: Yeah, I mean different bail funds approach it different ways and have uh, you know criteria. Is it's a little bit of a, a of an inflated word, but will make decisions to bail to sort of they have to budget like they don't have unlimited funds right Mm -hmm. so they may say you know we only pay a max of two thousand dollars or five thousand dollars per bail or we can only bail out 40 people per month or two people per week right and so through that there's some you know there's cases that they're having to say no to Mm -hmm. Um, in general folks are bail funds are explicit about not rejecting certain charges I think it's important for folks to think about that, that. Right, like a lot of times, what's classified as a violent felony, like I think there's a assumption that when people say the word violent felony, right, as a charge, that, that means somebody, you know, committing some heinous, you know, like people think of like murder, death, and like lots of weapons, right? When actually a lot of times, you know. Especially, there's a there's a there's a trend of upcharging, right? And you can you, you will see a violent, you know, felony that's somebody stole a cell, you know, a cell phone because of the value of cell phones, right? And you'll see, you know, right, Khalif Browder's charge of stealing a backpack was a felony, right? Um, and so I think there is, you know, I think bail funds also try to really do some education about that of like what are we talking, you know, like. We like yeah. We, we don't want to get into classification by charge because charges are so wildly not representative of actually the, what, what 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 people yeah. think about in their mind. And also, again, it's a charge. A person is presumptively you know right. presumed innocent at this point.
1: I don't remember the exact study, but I feel confident in saying that you know people of color are disproportionately sort of upcharged, right? And so. Charging decisions are reflections of other sort of biases and inequalities within the system. So, so are there any jurist oh you know, I wanted to ask before I forget, um, what actually is the sort of loss rate as you um you, you were saying there's like fines and fees or whatever. Mm-hmm. So let's say I donated a hundred dollars to a bail fund. Mm-hmm. How much of those hundred dollars would be contributed to I like Bailing a second
0: person out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really depends jurisdiction by jurisdiction, right? I I know I probably in this interview will say that phrase like 100 times, but it is wildly different um, in every place. Um, I think, you know, the fees and fines that, um, like the fees that people, bail funds have to pay differ, right? In New York, it's 3%, in Philadelphia, it's 40%, right? There are jurisdictions where in Massachusetts, you pay a forty dollar fee on any bail of any amount. So if the Massachusetts bail fund pays a hundred dollar bail, which they often do, they're paying one hundred and forty, and forty of it is is a hundred percent loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I always say it's, it's a range between, you know, usually three and fifty percent. Right, is the fines, and then there are a lot of places where bail funds are having to make the choice. Um, And they often, they grapple with this and they make this choice of if they're paying bail to free somebody and that person will not be free unless an additional fine is paid because they owe, they have another, they have a fine, they have back child support, they have some other hold that they often sometimes pay that because they're like the intention is to get the person free. So you want to actually go through all the way and you don't want to pay bail and then have somebody reincarcerated because they had a $75 ticket that they just could, they, they couldn't they could afford the bill, so they were not going to afford that ticket.
1: So you are part of this, or you're running this sort of um, effort uh, to uh, organize bail funds across the country. So if someone wanted to set up a bail fund, mm-hmm. and they came to you, um, what would be the, the first couple questions you'd ask? Mm-hmm. What would the important considerations? Yeah.
0: So there's a couple sort of like I'd say there's like really two macro questions that we that we ask folks to to spend time with, right um, when they want to when they're thinking about whether a bail fund is like the right intervention for them um, and in that moment. One, maybe it's actually three questions, right One is, what is their connection to work to end money bail, right? and like I, we think that in this era like Bailing people out in some sort of abstract like separated space will certainly benefit the individuals they bail out, but that we're in this moment and that bail funds really, unless they have gazillions of dollars, are gonna only be able to bail out a limited number of people. And so it's really important to have an analysis and be connected to the work. And so that leads to a lot of other questions about well. Who is leading the bail fund work right is it part of a coalition of groups that are working on ending mass incarceration is it part of a nonprofit that's already established that's that's working on bail reform right is it a new organization and who's going to lead it and guide it and how will it connect to the work so we really ask people to sort of think about that and and have a have a vision and a plan right and be explicit about how that's gonna work and really if if people come up with a theory of change about how the bail fund is related to other organizations and an ecosystem of groups that are working to end money bail, that's usually a really good first step, right? If they can't, or if it's going to be, if they can't articulate that, right, mm-hmm. that's usually like an area of, of work that we encourage people to do. The second piece um, is then um, we sort of work with people to think about. Well, what is the actual system in your jurisdiction and how would an inter- intervention work? And that is like a, a sort of, because they're like a sort of like the big bundle of feasibility questions, right? Because what's worked in Brooklyn and Bronx and across New York City does not, is like, can be night and day compared to like what, is ha- what happens in Tallahassee, Florida, or what happens in Oakland, California, or what happens in Detroit, right? And so, really understanding how does the system work. Where would a bail fund be able to intervene? Are there laws that prevent them of who can pay bail? Um, and then what's actually happening in the system, right? What's the average amount of bail and you know how does it get set and how would you intervene? And so that's doing that kind of a feasibility study and sort of working with people to understand that right leads people to be able to, you know, almost come up with their 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 plan, right? Of like, is is the average bail Actually, ten thousand dollars, and so what does that? Can you? You know, what does that mean? How much do you need, right? Can you? You know, are you going to be only able to bail people out at bail review hearings that happen many weeks after somebody's been incarcerated, right? Um, you know, how would you? You know, communicate with public defenders and families in a system, right? If especially if people are being incarcerated very far away from where they are arrested, right? In a lot of places where jails are. Out in suburbs or in rural areas, so that's those are kind of the two areas of questions that we spend a lot of time talking to people. Then I think we, we think it's important to really interrogate both, right? Because one is really linked to like how is this bail fund going to have impact that's larger than its like dollar sort of you know day to day impact, and then the bigger questions of like. Is this actually going to work? Right? And we've seen there's plenty of places that we have had conversations where having a revolving bail fund doesn't actually work for financial reasons because the average bails are so high, mm-hmm. or other logistical system pieces. Right? So in Calif- you know, and so in that, that usually leads folks to think about things differently. Right? In California, for instance, there's a lot of places in California where the average bail is $50,000. Right, and so you would need a lot, that's very different than the average bail that Brooklyn Bail Fund is paying is $910, mm. right? And so you need a lot more money to do that. And so some folks have decided to just do periodic bailouts that are really tactical, that elevate the issue and free a few people, but they don't have mm. hundreds of thousands of dollars to revolve every month, right? And, and other places, I know, have thought about it differently when once they sort of see what is the average amount the bail is or what kinds of, you know, how does the system, how would they have to set up a system, whether it's staffing volunteers, right? I mean, I think we were talking before we started about Massachusetts, right? Massachusetts has a, you know, a system in which you pay bail to a bail commissioner who only works in the evenings. And many of the jails are, you know, Far away from the city, right, and so that's different than that takes a very different level of coordination of staffing and volunteers to actually pay bail in that system than it does in Brooklyn, in which people can walk down and pay at the bail paying window, right? Yeah. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we really have people work with and to understand that there is not a single model, right? People are doing this in very different ways. They have. A lot of common goals about freeing people and money bail, and they learn across the national bail fund network. There's a lot of collaboration and learning about something that somebody tried in Iowa. Will that work, you know, in Boston in Connecticut? They tried something. Will that work in Seattle? Um, and learn from each other, but be really clear that there's not like an off-the-shelf way to do this because of how different the systems are. Um, how would
1: this system look different if? If it were sent, if it were centered to make your clients' lives easier,
0: yeah. that's a hard question because I have a very hard time. Um, I I don't want to like create like a smooth system of incarcerating people. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that I think the way that I would sort of maybe answer the question is to you know I think the the process of bail being set and the process of paying bail like is one level of injustice after another, right? And it's know I think we often really note to folks that like it's meant to further marginalize and punish people even though they're not guilty of anything at this point right and there is the process is not easy it's not it's it's meant to really continue to grind people down and in many ways to make sure that they lose their money right like the amount of time that bail funds have to fight with the system to get the funds reserved, like the funds returned, right, is like a good example. Like, and if you're a busy individual person who doesn't have a lot of time to, or a lot of comfort with arguing with the system, you can see how much money just gets lost and gobbled into the system.
1: Does that? I mean, is that money like find and fees where traditionally it goes into sort of the
0: either the court budget or the? fund. Yeah, I mean, there's like you know, some jurisdictions will be, in unclaimed property, there'll be a bunch of you know, bail that. Is there? So I mean, I think that to your question, like I mean, this is something that folks in New York City and other places have. Again, I don't. I'm not advocating that we should like smooth out, you know, smooth the <laughs> the way the system incarcerates people. I don't want people to be incarcerated, right? I want to see an end to end to money bail and an end to uh, end to mass incarceration, um, and incarceration generally. But I think that you can look at how insane it is that. We've built these systems. If you're gonna rebuild a court system, there are plenty of ways that are like so basic. Like we can pay for anything online with a credit card, but you can't pay for bail, right? Yeah. So you have to wait till somebody comes and pays in person and you can only pay this certain specific like there's all of these like little pieces that are such basic functions of any other part of society, but we've specifically not modernized or fixed anything to make it hard to further persecute people.
1: Right. The elephants, to me, sound like, for, for lack of a better word, like an amazing reform hack. Like they both buy people's, literally buy people's freedom today. And then, as you said, they kind of coalesce and use that information to advocate for, um, for wider reform. And I just wonder if you think that there is there are other places in the criminal legal system where a model like that would work, um, where like a practical, tactical intervention could change, could be used to change attitudes and
0: policies. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways. Um, I mean, I think some people refer to it as community justice. There's a lot of ways, I think, that having communities directly engage with the system provoke it to actually be confronted and to change. and, to, and So I think there's a lot of folks doing court watching. There's a lot of people doing um, participatory defense um, and building these alternative community justice systems that are, right, like, I mean, this is the thing about bail funds too, right? It's a bail fund, a community... Of, you know, even if it's a you know group of people who work for a nonprofit, but it's the community is is intervening in the system and being present in a system that says that it's speaking on behalf of the, the community, and so I think things that set up that changed, um, you know, change that balance of power and sort of move the dial a little bit, right? I I, I think similarities are things that where community is present and witness to what's happening and can actually say not in our name, right? So that looks different in in different systems. I think we'll believe it
1: at that. Cool. Thank you so much for thank you. Time. Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to rate and review on iTunes or wherever you got this podcast. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you at BoarddearPodcast at gmail.com. We're particularly interested in hearing from people who have been directly impacted by the criminal legal system. So reach out with whatever thoughts you might have. This was made possible with the help of the people at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, specifically Anna Weick and Brooke Hopkins, who continue to be wonderful. And thanks to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music.